The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help. Lord, we come to you because without you, we are nothing. And if we don't hear from you this morning, this time will be futile and empty. And so we come to you asking you that we would behold Christ in Daniel chapter 6, that we would see Jesus as impressive, as eternally beautiful and glorious, and that we would have greater rest and trust in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like us to reflect for a moment some of the catastrophic events in human history in the last thousand or so years involving wicked rulers. Maybe from your history books you think of Genghis Khan and all the millions of people he killed in the Mongol Empire about 700 years ago, or King Charles II about 400 years ago and all the Baptists and Puritans he imprisoned in England, Scotland during his reign, or Joseph Stalin, who we believe massacred millions upon millions of Russians during the Soviet Union, or the Holocaust where more than six million Jews were exterminated and killed in the 1940s. Honestly, it's difficult to process those horrific events and wicked figures in history. And yet, the Scriptures affirm again and again that God will never let wickedness go unpunished. That wickedness, those atrocities, cannot cancel God's kingship, God's sovereignty. He will punish evil and not let it go unpunished. In fact, listen to these words from Psalm 76 and verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. So how does God take the wrath of man and use it for his praise? That's an incomprehensible thought when you think about that. I can't do that. You can't do that. No one can do that. Only God can take the wrath of man and use it for his praise. He takes all the wrath and he defeats any human opposition to him by defeating that and crushing it so that he will be praised even more for it. So in our passage this morning, Daniel chapter 6, which is perhaps one of the most dramatic and memorable stories of our Bible, we see God foiling and crushing his enemies and using that for his very praise and glory. So the main point of our passage is this. God's sovereignty overrules. He overrules and punishes man's wicked scheming, and by doing so, God vindicates and will vindicate his people. God's sovereignty always overrules and punishes man's wickedness, his scheming, and by doing so, he will vindicate his people. The message of this chapter for Daniel's audience in this particular chapter in the 6th century B.C. when it was written, was one of assurance and strengthening of their faith in God, even in the midst of exile that Daniel and his friends and the people of Israel find themselves in. And even in the midst of these wicked attempts in the book of Daniel to undermine Daniel's God and Israel's God, 
God prevails. The Israelites have been in exile for now around 40 or so years, and they have seen different attempts of kings, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and now Darius, to suppress the worship of the true God. Yet, in chapter 5, verse 31, that we looked at last week, the Medo-Persian Empire has now replaced the Babylonian Empire. That's in the year 539 B.C. The kingdom may have changed, but God was still on his throne with his people in exile, and he was with his servant Daniel, particularly in this chapter. So my main this morning is to trace the sovereignty of God in this text by observing how God defeated the wicked schemes of the Persians in spite of their passing of a civil law to ensnare Daniel. This passage is both a reminder and a ballast to our souls that God is in control of every human institution entity, whether they be civil governments, whether they be kings, whether they be empires. God is in control of all nations. Whether it's the Medo Empire, the Persian Empire, the Ru- Russia, Ukraine, the United States, He is working out His sovereign plan right now in His time for the good of His people and ultimately for His glory. So this passage in front of us is arranged in three scenes. And that's how we'll trace it this morning. Scene one describes the plot against Daniel. That's his verses one through nine. In scene two, Daniel responds to the plot against him and we see the consequences of his response. This is verses 10 through 18. And lastly, in scene three, we'll notice God overrules and completely foils that plot in verses 19 through 28, which features, of course, the lion's den. So as we consider each of these scenes, one thing to track as we go through this text this morning is to notice the narrator's emphasis, which I believe is Daniel, his emphasis on the fixed nature of the laws of the Medes and the Persians. You see that four times in this text, in verse 8, 12, 15, and 17. This phrase, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, and how fixed they are, and they're unchangeable. So Daniel's communicating as a narrator here that God is going to overrule and unfix those fixed laws of the Medes and the Persians four times here. And one more thing to consider as we start is how does this chapter fit into the larger scheme and context of the book of Daniel? So this is the final chapter, this chapter 6, of the narrative portions of the book of Daniel. And beginning next time, we'll enter into the visions of Daniel from chapter 7 on to the end in chapter 12. So this concludes the the narration or narrative portion of the book of Daniel. So scene one, the plot against Daniel is concocted, verses 1 through 9, but before the plot is concocted, Daniel gives us a, a Persian civics lesson. In fact, the Jewish audience is now getting, in this context, a civics lesson on how Persian government works. And so, beginning with the identification of the king, which is Darius. Now, the question is, who is this Darius the Mede? We saw this is his name, his title, in verse 31 of the last chapter. Take a look at 531. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And then in the opening of chapter 6, we have, it pleased Darius, the same one, Darius the Mede, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. So I ask again, who is this Darius to me? I believe that the best way to interpret Darius is to understand him as the same person as King Cyrus, who is referenced three other times uh, by name in the book of Daniel. 
So there are at least two reasons why I believe Darius and Cyrus are the same king. Number one, if we calculate the 62 years that we just saw in 531, and we go back and subtract that from 539 B.C., we get approximately 600 B.C., which is what we believe, uh, what historians believe, is the actual birth year of King Cyrus. Uh, and so that seems plausible that Darius and Cyrus would be the same based upon the birth date. Number two, dual royal titles, that is two royal titles for a single entity, is very common, very common in the ancient world. And so the narrator, Daniel, probably chose, selected this particular title, Darius, because his audience, his Jewish audience, would have been more familiar, perhaps, with this particular title, Darius, rather than Cyrus, although he does use the term Cyrus, as I said, three times later on in this book. So the question then is, look at verse 28. What does the narrator mean when he uses a phrase in 628 at the very end of our text here? So does Daniel prosper during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It might seem that those are two separate entities, two separate kings right there. But I think the best way to understand that word and there is as an assertion of namely or even. So we could read it this way. During the reign of Darius, namely... Specifically, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That word there, and, is frequently understood, interpreted throughout the Old Testament that way, even or namely, the second phrase supporting the first phrase. And then one last question is, how do we make sense of one king being both Mede and Persian? Well, Cyrus was historically, biologically, both Mede and Persian. His mother, we believe, was Mede, Median, and his father was Persian. So, if this Darius indeed is Cyrus, that means what we're looking at in this chapter is the great Cyrus II, also called Cyrus the Great in history, and one of the greatest emperors ever in history, not just of the Persian Empire, but of the world. And this is the Cyrus whom Alexander the Great adored and emulated his own empire about 200 years later when he was the ruler of the world. Now, God's sovereign appointment of Cyrus Darius is very implicit in this chapter by orchestrating all these events for his glory. But we also see this at play outside the book of Daniel. In fact, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Keep one finger in Daniel and turn to Isaiah with me. Isaiah chapter 44. God himself declared 200 years before Cyrus's birth through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44 that Cyrus would be, notice these words, his shepherd. God says he is my shepherd. This is chapter 44, verse 28 of Isaiah, and he, Cyrus, shall fulfill all my purpose. For, and this is the Cyrus we're talking about in this chapter, this Darius, same man. Further, in chapter 45, you look a few verses down from 44, Isaiah 45, verses 4 through 6, we have this explanation of God equipping Cyrus and calling him, even though Cyrus did not know me, God says. Further, we see in another text, 2 Chronicles 36, that the Lord, quote, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, in commissioning the exiled Jews to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild a temple that was destroyed by the Chaldean Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. So, of course, God from eternity past, not just 200 years prior to this event in Daniel 6, sovereignly purposed that Cyrus be the, would be the king of the Persian Empire. But we get to see it for real time in Isaiah 44 and 45. That this is the Darius, this is the Cyrus that God had predicted, had prophesied through his prophet Isaiah. And this is just another reminder that the sovereign appointment of Darius is in keeping with one of the main themes of the book of Daniel. 
chapter 2, verse 21. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Now, as we go back to Daniel, chapter 6, we'll notice this layer of administration bureaucracy going on here. The three chief officials or high administrators here, or the 120 satraps. So why do these first three verses describe in political detail the Persian administration? I think there are at least two reasons here. Number one, because God is intricately and personally involved in every single layer of bureaucracy and government, whether it be to the very level state politics and local politics or our very precinct or school district that we live in here in this state. God is over our districts, 435 congressional districts in the United States. God is intricately overseeing it and involved. And what a blessing that is as we come upon an election year, is it not, to see that God has controlled every single appointed elected official. God is on the throne, not we are. Number two, I think the other reason why Daniel puts this layer of bureaucracy here in the opening verses is because God was the one not Darius, that had elevated Daniel through the levels of Persian bureaucracy up to the level of a high official, administrator. Daniel's rise to power and authority is a key theme in the book of Daniel, and Daniel's rise is not attributed to his cleverness or his vegetarian diet or his interpretation of dreams, but Daniel's appointment was because a sovereign God put him in that place. And every authority that we see in our land today is divinely put there, whether it's a wicked person or a righteous person. So we, as we look in the world right now, God placed Vladimir Putin in his position. God places President Biden in his position. God places our governors and our mayors and our school board. That is the work of God, and we acknowledge that. And yet there's a crafting of a plot that goes on in verses 4 through 5. The Persian conspirators have this evil, sinister idea to end Daniel's reputation, his political career, and ultimately his life. But just as God sovereignly arranged the kingship of Darius, so God sovereignly allowed this evil plan to develop in Daniel's life. So how many conspirators were involved in this? Well, we know that the two, according to the plural of the officials here, we know there are at least two administrators involved, and then several satraps, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but probably a handful or several of them are involved. The wicked men in this plot acknowledge that Daniel had impeccable, blameless character. And throughout this book, Daniel is portrayed as blameless and faithful, and there is not one record of his sin. And then the plot continues in verses 6 through 9 as it's presented to Darius himself. In these verses, the trap is set for Daniel. This was a deceptive presentation to Darius, who was blissfully ignorant of the conspirators' scheme to get rid of one of their own. And Darius is so blinded by his own sense of pride and arrogance that he completely misses the point. Notice that in this narrative, the conspirators flattered Darius seven times with, O king, O king, O king, O king. And they stroke his ego and massage it until he... is he agrees with their plan. And he signs the executive order. Because he sees himself as a god, his, his ego is really struck by this. And in the plot is a reminder to the king that not even Darius can change the strict, fixed laws of the Medes and the Persians. But we find out later in this chapter there is one 
who can still work in spite of executive orders. There is one who can still work in spite of Supreme Court rulings or judicial appointments or company diversity policies or political pressures on Christians. That is the one true God who is a sovereign king over the Persians and over us. And nothing surprises our God. Well, that leads us into scene two, verses 10 through 18, where Daniel responds to the plot against them and the consequences of his response. So in verse 10, take a look at verse 10, where Daniel responds by prayer. He's unfazed. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, what did he do? He was unfazed. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He responds with prayer to his God, not Darius, which remember, he's committing a high capital offense now against the king, according to executive order. He's not praying just once. He's praying three times a day on his knees, and he's praying towards Jerusalem. I think this is really significant here. Let's not gloss over this. Why is he praying toward Jerusalem? Because of what Solomon prayed, King Solomon, 300, 400 years before him, in 1 Kings 8.48. Notice what Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8.48. He says that when your people, God, are in exile, and they pray towards you in Jerusalem... I'm going to quote from Solomon now. The city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven and answer them. Daniel's posture toward Jerusalem meant that Daniel was claiming the promises of God that Solomon had prayed. And he was looking toward Jerusalem with hope and faith, even in the midst of the threat against his wife and the threat against God's people. He was claiming God's promise to be with his people and with Daniel specifically in exile. He knows that he's praying in direct violation of the king's executive order. And the results would result in capital punishment, namely death by lions. Yet he claimed with boldness the promise and presence of God in a time of grave danger. Now, we're not told the exact explicit content of his prayer other than that, that he thanked God, thanksgiving to God in verse 10, which again is remarkable given the danger that he's in. And yet Daniel was firm in his faith. And no amount of pressure around him, political pressure or otherwise, was going to undermine his faith in God and stop him to praying to his God three times a day with the windows open. Well, the report of Daniel's alleged crime reaches the king. This is verses 11 through 15. The wicked conspirators pounce on the opportunity and they tattletale on Daniel after they observe what he's doing. And we learn from this seen in verses 11 through 15, that Darius is actually Daniel's political ally, not enemy. So Darius is crestfallen when he learns that he's deceived and by these conspirators, and his blameless friend Daniel is about to suffer the fate of the paws and the jaws of the lions. And once again, we see in verse 15 this reminder by these conspirators, you can't change the laws of the Medes and the Persians. It's fixed. This phrase is yet another reminder for Daniel's audience and for us today that God is still on the move. God is still on the move in spite of wicked men, evil ordinances, persecution of Christians around in the world today, genocide, the horrific crimes against humanity in Ukraine. God has not forsaken his people. He has not closed his eyes to the evil in the world. God is watching, and he will make things right. He will vindicate his own people in the end. And this scene is a reminder 
and appointing to that reality. And yet, in 16 through 18, if you are in Daniel's audience and reading this for the first time, you start to get concerned because you see the punishment is going to go into fruition here, at least it seems to be, for his alleged crime. The tension of the scene reaches a crescendo in verses 16 through 18, and it almost becomes unbearable when we see how a blameless man is being unjustly treated and his life is about to be terminated. You can almost hear the eager roar of anticipation of the lions and the snapping of their teeth as they start to detect the scent of human blood and human flesh as he's thrown, pushed into the lion's den. And if we are in the Daniel's audience at this time, we would be asking questions such as, is Daniel going to make it? Will he fend off the lions? But remember, Daniel was probably around 80 years old at this time. And now he's facing hungry, several hungry lions. From a purely human perspective, Daniel's life is game over. From a human perspective, how can anyone survive hungry lions, let alone an 80-year-old man? Yet the answer to that is, but God. And that's scene three. But God overrules and foils the plot. Not partially, but completely. Look at verses 19 through 28, which is scene three. Beginning in verse 19, we see Daniel's deliverance. The scene dramatically demonstrates and shifts here in God's favor. Of course, God was winning all along, and now the instruments and the details are now going to be spun out here. God's sovereign purpose from eternity past was not only to allow the wicked schemes to thrive for a little bit, at least from one perspective, but to also rescue Daniel in the end. God was not yet done with Daniel, even though he was 80 years old. Daniel's statement in verse 22 is the climax of the story, and I think the most compelling statement, perhaps, in this story, when he says this. Look at verse 22 with me. My God, he says, sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. Daniel's first words after a night with the lions in their den is about God. God did it all, he says. Not me. God did it. God shut their mouths. God not only was in control of wicked men, but he was in control of his creation, including the ravenous lions that he had made for his glory. God was in control. Now, according to the Department of Biological Sciences, the University of Minnesota, a male lion can eat up to 95 pounds of meat per day. That's a lot of meat when you think about that. And assuming that the metabolism of Persian lions is the same as today's lions, uh, there's, that's a lot of meat that can be consumed. And Multiply that by 5 to 10, say there's 5 to 10 lions in this den, that's about 500 to 1,000 pounds of meat that these lions are ready to, con- to consume. And Daniel's right there. And yet, under normal circumstances, Daniel would have been literally dead meat in this den. Literally. But what happens here is not a normal situation, is it not? It's a divine intervention. What God does in verse 22 is utterly supernatural and miraculous. God mutes the appetites of the lions. He shuts them. And for lions, several of them, to not devour human flesh for a period of several hours is nothing short of miraculous. Don't think for a moment that these lions were just not hungry or they were sleeping or too lazy because these are the same lions in verse 24 that do what? They devour and chew up the bones of the conspirators before they even land on the ground. So this is not just lazy lions or tire lion syndrome. 
God is sovereign over the paws and the jaws of lions and our carnivorous instincts and appetites. See, God is greater than anything there is, and he is in control. And verse 23 testifies even to the fact that Daniel is completely unscathed. Notice with me at verse 23. The phrase, no harm was found on him, the text asserts. Let's not gloss over that observation in text. That's a really important observation. There's no paw scratch on him. There's no tooth puncture upon his body. God clearly rescued Daniel from the lion's den and preserved his entire body. See, the prophet Daniel's life and his deliverance points us directly, I believe, to Jesus Christ, the greater prophet. Think about it. Jesus, as Daniel, had blameless, impeccable character. Jesus, as Daniel, was falsely accused of things he didn't do. Jesus, as Daniel, trusted in his God without wavering and prayed to his God. Yet God did not permit his son, Jesus Christ, to be devoured by the jaws of death and sin. Psalm 16.10 states this of Christ, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In fact, when Christ emerged from the grave, he didn't have any broken bones. The Scriptures make that crystal clear. Death had lost its sting with Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Christ was not crushed by death in the grave. He himself crushed death in the grave forever. And because of that, for those of us who believe in Jesus, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no hold on Christ. And if you believe in Jesus, death has no hold or ownership on you. If you are in Christ, and if you have lost a loved one who recently has gone to be with Jesus, this is glorious news for you, is it not? Death can never separate you or your loved one from Christ. And one day we will gather with all the saints of all time who have gone before us, including our loved ones who are in Jesus, and we will be alive with them forever. Amen? Verse 24 gives us a stark contrast to Daniel's deliverance. So Daniel himself is preserved body and bones. And yet, verse 24 shows the exact opposite, does it? While Daniel emerges from the den unscathed, the conspirators are thrown into the lion's den. So why are the conspirators cast in the lion's den? I think the primary reason is because of their deception. Verse 24 suggests this by the phrase, who had maliciously accused Daniel. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that the sin that the Persians hated above all other sins was the sin of lying, the sin of deception. And I think that's at play here. But ultimately, theologically, the reason that these conspirators are executed is because God will bring down full justice upon wickedness. If it's not in this life with our eyes that we see, God will do it in the future. God will break the metaphoric arm of the wicked, and in this case, the literal physical arms of the wicked. We see this in Psalm 10. Those who dare oppose God will be crushed. In this case, these men are literally crushed to death. So God allows the lion's carnivorous appetites to return to them, and they immediately devour the conspirators. Now note that the families of these conspirators were also sentenced to death by lions. Children and wives, the text tells us in verse 24. So it was a Persian custom for this to happen, to punish the family members of the guilty, so to prevent any type of retaliation or vengeance from the sons, especially when they got older and would overthrow the king because he killed their dads. 
But theologically, we know in the Old Testament that sustained rebellion against God himself often results in the death of an entire family. We see this in particular with the sin of Achan in Joshua 7. As you recall, his entire family was punished for his sin, which shows us the full brunt of God's justice and his seriousness in which he takes sin. Now, there's also one piece of irony I want you to see in verse 24 that is very significant. Those who maliciously accused Daniel, or literally those who ate and devoured Daniel in pieces, as it is in the original text, were themselves physically eaten in pieces by the lion. I think that's an ironic choice of words there in verse 24. And another second word picture, also seen in this phrase, or in this verse, is broke all their bones. That word broke can be translated crush, and we actually have seen this word before in Daniel 2. In fact, turn briefly with me to Daniel 2 in verse 34. This should be very familiar if you remember this, this sermon from Daniel 2. In verse 34, speaking of the king's vision and this statue, God says, as you looked, or Daniel says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. That's the same exact word that you would see in 624. In other words, I believe what's going on here is that Daniel's reminding us that the same God who crushes the kingdoms of the world, as represented by the iron, clay, gold, and silver, and bronze, he's going to crush, likewise, any conspirator that rises up and tries to oppose God's sovereign rule and kingdom. And crushed bones in the Old Testament, by the way, are always symbolic of one thing, God's wrath and God's curse. And the result for Darius is astounding. This pagan king in verses 25 through 28 is going to give a doxology, a pagan king giving a doxology. Darius issues a royal decree to fear and tremble before Daniel's God, and he supports this with five theological statements about Daniel's God in verses 26 through 27. These are the rationales for his royal decree. Five statements. The first pair of statements speak of God's character. He is both living and eternal. The second pair speaks of God's kingdom, just like himself being eternal and unending. And I want to focus upon this phrase for just a moment in verse 26. Take a look at 626 here. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. This statement is not only significant in a larger context of the book of Daniel, where Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman kingdoms would fall, but it points to a greater king and kingdom who is coming and who is right now, and that is the kingdom of Christ. Look at the wording here. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. Now listen to these words as I read them from Revelation eleven fifteen at the end of our Bible. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Doesn't that sound strikingly parallel? Darius' confession ultimately points to the final consummation of Jesus' kingdom, when King Jesus will reign forever and ever, and there is no stopping of his kingdom. King Jesus sits on the throne right now and will always be there. No Persian law can alter this reality. No pride of lions can change that because Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah who will reign forever and ever. And then there are three final statements that support verse 26 
And this speaks of God's sovereign providential activities, namely his, activ- his activities to perform signs and wonders. And then Darius ends with a very personal statement of Daniel being delivered from the voracious appetites of the lions as he himself witnessed with his own eyes. So this doxology speaks to the greater king. Darius acknowledges the greatest, perhaps, kings of one of the greatest kings of all history bows down here before Jesus and gives doxology. So how should we apply this text to our lives today? Think in three ways. Firstly, because God is sovereign over all things, don't despair. Don't despair. But trust and pray to God. And when you have prayed, pray some more and pray again. The sovereignty of God in all things should prompt us to trust God and pray rather than despair. This is exactly what Daniel did. Instead of despairing, he was prompted to pray to God even though he had these ordinances and executive order upon him. The wicked schemes of those around Daniel prompted him to fall on his knees and pray to God over wicked schemes. Brothers and sisters, God hems you in before and behind and he lays your hand upon you. Just as God was with Daniel in the lion's den, so God is with you in your metaphoric lion's den, whatever it is right now. What should we specifically pray for then? I think we could pray Psalm ten fifteen for example, that God would break the arm or the power of wickedness and evildoers and call his wickedness to account till you find none. Or Psalm 76, 10, which I mentioned earlier, that God would take the wrath of man and use it for his praise. Those are some ways that we can pray for God to punish wickedness. John Bunyan, 17th century Baptist pastor, I think gives us a great illustration in his classic Pilgrim's Progress of how we should pray to God and not despair. While Christian hopeful in the end of the book are locked up in Doubting Castle in giant, of giant despair, giant despair was about to kill them. And Bunyan says, in desperation, the pilgrims, quote, began to pray. And they continued in prayer to almost break of day. And then Christian says, what a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock and downing castle. And sure enough, Christian and hopeful use the key promise and they're set free. And brothers and sisters, you and I have a key called promise. It's the word of God. Take God's promises today, this week, and claim them and pray them over and over again. Sing them over and over again. I want to address you children out here. If you are afraid of the dark at night or you're anxious or worried about something in your life or the world around you, pray to God and rehearse the promises, the good promises of God to you in Christ. Even the mighty King David who slew the giant Goliath said this about his affair sometimes in Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid what flesh can do to me. God is stronger than your fears, children. Trust in him. So whether you're a child or an adult here this morning, claim the promises of God in prayer. Like Daniel did when he prayed toward Jerusalem and claimed the promises of God through 1 Kings. Let all of us pray Jesus' promise in John 16, 33, that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ will vindicate his people in the end, and he will overcome all wickedness forever. Secondly, 
This text bids us to hate pride as God hates pride and pursue humility. God abhorred the pride of Darius and he abhors and detests pride not only in 539 B.C., but in our day as well. God hates pride because pride says ultimately, there is a God and it's me. Humility rather says, there is a God and I am not him. Humility also says, there go I, but by the grace of God. May God give you grace to kill pride before it kills you. Listen to God's words regarding pride in the Bible. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And thirdly, submit to King Jesus. Daniel 6 points us to an infinitely better and greater king who is in charge, King Jesus. There is a king and you and I are not him. One practical way to submit to Jesus' kingship this week is in our plans and schedule. Some of us, some of you might think that your plans and goals this week are fixed like the laws of the Medes and Persians. And yet, God would say to you, I am your king. I am king of your calendar. I'm king of your schedule this week. Therefore, hold our plans loosely in a James 4.15 way. If the Lord wills, then we will do this. Another way to submit to King Jesus is by faithfully living and plotting each day in godly faithfulness. David was faithful to God. We see this specifically in the text in verse 4. Daniel was faithful to his God in spite of wicked schemes. Christian discipleship is daily living faithfully to Jesus Christ, day in and day out. If you believe in Jesus, Jesus is your king. So worship the king. Be enamored with your king. Kiss the son. If you're here this morning, either here or on the live stream, and if you've not believed in Jesus, we would invite you, encourage you to believe in Jesus and to bow your knee to King Jesus. And the promise in 1 John 1, 9 is this, that he is faithful to forgive your sins when you confess to him. At the beginning, we considered some of the tragedies and horrific events in history, and yet one example shows of many examples, shows God is still on the throne and God can still use the wrath of man to praise him. And that is the life of John Bunyan when he was imprisoned by the wicked King Charles II. In the 12 years that Bunyan was in prison, he wrote a number of works and the most memorable work probably in Christian literature is The Pilgrim's Progress. Charles II sought to mute Christians and pastors. Again, 1684, The Pilgrim's Progress comes out because of writing it in prison for several years, 12 years. And to this day, Pilgrim's Progress remains one of the greatest Christian bestsellers in literature of all time. Why? Because God took a wicked situation and allowed his servant to compose something for the good of his church in Pilgrim's Progress. And we can benefit from them from today. Bethlehem, there is no legislation. There is no Supreme Court ruling. There is no government overreach or European war, or inflation of gas prices, they can unseat God from his throne. No scheme of the wicked will cancel Jesus' everlasting dominion. That's not possible. Because Jesus Christ is on his throne, and no one can cancel that. All the kingdoms are temporary, but Jesus' kingdom is forever. The schemes of the wicked and lion's jaws are no match for King Jesus. We serve a God whose sovereign purposes are fixed, and it doesn't matter if the laws of the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. There is a God in heaven, and he is infinitely greater and better than any mighty empire, kingdom, army, government. 
He's greater than the United Nations. He's greater than NATO. He's greater than the President of the United States. He is greater than Congress. He is more powerful than all 195 current countries in the world combined. Why? Because God's sovereignty overrules and punishes man's wicked scheming. And by doing so, God will one day vindicate his people. And everyone one day will answer to and bow the knee to King Jesus and confess that he is King of kings and Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Our sovereign Lord, we bow our hearts to you in holy reverence, confessing that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Truly, no scheme of man, no war, no relational conflict, no financial crisis, no loss of a loved one, no medical diagnosis can ever cancel your sovereignty or your kingdom. You do reign over all things, and one day you will physically reign over the new heavens and a new earth. Blessings do abound wherever you reign. So, Lord, we ask you to rule and reign in our hearts for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.